Today we are in the book of Nahum, and it is uh, one of the minor prophets, uh, three chapters following the book of Micah, and uh, really looking forward to this one today. It's a little bit, um, it's not quite as uh, intense maybe as the last week. Uh, last week, of course, there were seven chapters in Micah, and so uh, this one, only three chapters. Nahum is a guy that, uh, you know, I make a joke sometimes with people that uh, if, they, if, they're, if you're a Christian, I feel like you should want to read the Scripture because the Scripture is the revelation of God. This is the, the God is the author of Scripture. Throughout time, He inspired, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the people that were writing and penning these words. And I think it's important for us, if you want to get to know God better, uh, get to know this book better. L- learn from it. Learn If you read it, you get to know the author better. Uh, it's the same as any book, right? I, I read a few books on vacation, and um, as I read these books, I understood more about the authors that wrote them. That's just because it's, it's coming from their heart, coming from their mind. This is coming from the heart and mind of God. And so the more we read it, the better off we will be. However, uh, I got an email even yesterday uh, from somebody I've never met before. They have been watching our services online. I don't know them. I don't know. I mean, I, they're like, the email's really long because they're explaining who they are in the email. And they, uh, they basically came to this, this question. They said, we, we love the services that you guys are, are we, we love watching you and it's super fun. And she, and this lady said, um, but I, I want to know how do I, how can I, where do I start? Like reading the Bible is hard. Like it's hard work. And I'm like, it, it is work. It's, it's, it's hard work to get started. And it's also hard work because there's, um, it's, it's a lot of things we don't understand because we've not put the time to understand them. And so we've got to put a lot of work and effort into it. This is one of those books, especially the Minor Prophets as a whole. Um, we find that if you're going to start reading, you know, and I'm suggesting, you know, start in the book of John, right? Start in the book of First John. Start in the book of uh, Romans, a great place to start. Start in the book of uh, Acts, and you'll hear how the church began. Start in the Gospels. Um, start in, you know, because the ultimate thing is we want to start, well, let's just start at the beginning of the book, like we do with any book. So, and that's a great place to start too. But then you start reading in, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm already getting confused. You get into, you know, it's, it's Genesis, then you get into Exodus, you're like, okay, great stories. Then Leviticus, and you're like, whoa, what am I reading, right? It's like, oh, and then the numbers. It's like, why, why am I reading people's names that I can't pronounce, right? And so the more we get in there, it's, it's almost, you get kind of defeated because it's not just an, it's not an easy read. It's a, you're trying to get to know the author. And so I, I make a joke sometimes with people that are trying to read the Bible or um, I, I say, you know, whenever we get to heaven, each of these, uh, you know, Nahum's going to be there and we're going to walk up. I mean, he's, what are you going to talk to him about? It's like, uh, hey, so you're, you're in the Bible. <laughs> How did that, how'd that come about? And he's like, oh, you read my book. Do you like it? Yeah, it was great. You know, I think I think the more we get to learn the scripture, not so that we have more conversation starters in heaven. That's not the reason we're trying to read it. But um, I do think it is a. Uh, it's it helps me be reminded that these are real people. This happened. This is real. I believe. Listen, I'm I believe in the literal uh, interpretation of the Bible. I think that Jonah. I think Jonah was swallowed by a fish. I do, and I think that he was in there for three days. And I think he came out. I think it's exactly what happened. I believe in an actual flood. I believe that there was a flood in the world and it covered, the water covered everything. I believe that. I'm not going to say that it was just hyperbole. I'm not going to say it was just God being taking artistic uh, uh, privilege. I'm saying this happened. This is legitimately happened. And so... Uh, as we read more and more of the Bible, uh, we will begin to understand a little bit more about the author. And so that's the heart behind today. I want you to see the author in the book of Nahum. Nahum is a guy that we don't really know a whole lot about. He's another one of these guys that it doesn't give us his genealogy. It doesn't give us his, it says where he's from. That's it. That's what we know. We, we do see a little bit of some dating in this. So we see uh, kind of some, some time frame in which he lived. I think I can pinpoint the time frame within, uh, I, I mean, I've got a span of about 150 years that I can figure he's in somewhere. I don't have an exact day, uh, but you know what? I don't have to have an exact day. If I needed one, God would have put one in there. Um, he's given us a time frame, though. Uh, and so he, uh, this book takes place about roughly 100 to 130 years after Jonah. And the reason I know that, the reason we want to know that is because this book was written, um, it's, it's about the city of Nineveh. Now you remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Charles shared with you about Jonah. 
shared a lot about Jonah and uh, about the city of Nineveh. Jonah went into Nineveh, right? He, um, after, after he tried to run away first, then he went into Nineveh eventually, and he goes and preaches in Nineveh, repentance. And, uh, you know, he's like, hey, he didn't even preach, like, turn from your wicked ways. He says, listen, the Lord's going to destroy Nineveh. It's over. It's over. And people, they, they turned. They turned their hearts back to God. They turned their hearts to God. And um, great revival broke out. Now, this is about, I, I, think, I think it's about 130 years-ish after Jonah. And so I want you to realize something. Jonah uh, preached to Nineveh, and Nineveh revival broke out, and they turned their hearts to God. 130 years later, Nahum preaches to Nineveh, and Nineveh does not turn to God. They are not in revival mode. Now they are in rebellion mode, and he talks about the destruction of Nineveh. Um, I think it's, it's uh, this, Nahum may be the most favorite of the prophets, because Nahum is a guy who preaches against, he's, he's prophesying against the evil city of Nineveh, which is where the Assyrian uh, capital was, right? So the Assyrians, who were the ones brutally going in, and whenever they would go and take over someplace, they would, I mean, bloodshed like crazy. They were brutal. They were evil. Um, and so Nineveh was their capital city. So the, the southern kingdom specifically, this Nahum was uh, prophesying for the southern kingdom, Judah, but it was about the city of Nineveh. Here's something that's pretty cool. If you read uh, this whole book as a survey, uh, he is, he's telling the people of Judah, but he's, he knows that the ears of Nineveh are going to hear it. So it's kind of like me telling you something, but if, let's say, my brother is here, and let's say I'm trying to get a message across to my brother, and so I'm telling you guys about my brother, and my brother's going to hear it right? So that's kind of how he's telling the people of Judah, but Nineveh is going to be the ears that really are grabbing a hold of what this is. So he's, he's, and there's a couple times he'll direct some words to Nineveh, but most of them, again, are about Nineveh. And so as we uh, look through this and as we, we gravitate towards this, we know that uh, Nineveh was hated by the, the, especially the southern kingdom. By this point, the northern kingdom had already fallen. So by this point, the, uh, the northern kingdom fell and um, the Assyrians were just uh, mean and evil and all this by the time Nahum is prophesying about what will happen to Nineveh. So uh, it's a little bit of a background. Uh, he, there's some confusion about where he was really born and where he was raised. Uh, it says he was of, this, um, uh, of the people in verse number one, uh, Nahum of Elkosh. Uh, which is a couple of different places could be describing that. But ultimately, again, what matters is the message of this prophet. And so uh, as we jump in, uh, the, uh, the Nineveh has already destroyed the northern kingdom. It was in the most powerful position they had ever been in. So what had happened, and, and if you remember way back, so they had tried already, uh, if you know of uh, Sennacherib, Sennacherib, if you remember, tried to take over uh, Jerusalem, right? And the, took the Assyrians down to the gates of Jerusalem. Death angel comes, wipes them out, right? That's a, like massive, massive win for uh, Jerusalem, for the nation of Judah. And so that had already happened. So Assyria had already lost to the, the southern kingdom, to the nation, uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And so, but what happens in, in our understanding is one loss, so we're going to look at the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh, one loss is then followed by a whole bunch of wins. And whenever you get enough wins, your pride rises up and you forget about the loss and how bad it was. And so by this point, by the point Nahum is writing about this season he's writing about, which this all happens within 50 years of his, uh, of his prophecy, um, the Babylonians and the Medes are the one that end up destroying Nineveh so bad so you don't even know the city's there anymore. You don't, I mean, the city's like demolished. It's an oblivion. I mean, just destroyed. And so a little bit of the, our understanding of this is I, I see some spiritual principles. Whenever you, take, whenever you take a really big discipline from the Lord, if you keep getting in, if you get back into the world and you start winning in the world, you forget about that discipline right? If, let's say, as a kid growing up, let's say I disciplined my child for disobeying me. Well, then they go and they get away with a bunch of stuff, and they get away with a bunch of stuff for years, and they see all these great things that happen in their life because they're, they're disobeying the dad, their dad, and they're, they're getting away with it over and over and over and over again. They're going to forget about the one time they, they did get caught, 
right? They, they, that may be in their mind somewhere, but ultimately they're, gonna, they're still going to have enough courage to go out and, and, and disobey again because they've kept slipping further and further away. Same is true with the Assyrians. They had already lost the battle, but they won so many after that that they didn't even care about, uh, you know, Judah didn't matter anymore. So we see Nahum is, uh, it's, again, these three chapters. We're going to look at it in these three chapters, um, and, uh, and, and we'll see. If you're kind of wondering the, the, the area in which he lived along the timeline, uh, I believe Nahum falls uh, just after Isaiah. Isaiah, his, his term, um, and there's some, there's some battle things that happen, and, and some, it, this had to be said before Nineveh fell, obviously, and so there's some seasons, uh, and, and I think it's around about 150 years between uh, Isaiah was somewhere in that number. Um, again, just if you're making a timeline in your head, uh, I've tried, and I've got like eight timelines in my head right now, and they're all, they're all something. Uh, so um, anyway, that's kind of where he, where he finds himself. Um, Assyrians were, ob- were the ones that were brutal in their war, their treatment of other people and other nations. Uh, this was their capital city, uh, Nineveh. Nineveh also, just to know about how, how strong and fortified this city was, they say the walls of Nineveh were wide enough for three chariots to go across at the same time. So this is, uh, these, are, these are on the top of the walls. These are powerful. This is a powerful fortified city. They say there are uh, 180 of, the, um, uh, of towers that are connected in these walls. I mean, just massive, massive fortified city. Very, very intimidating. Um, they say some, uh, some par- portions of the wall, 100 feet tall. So as tall as our cross out in the parking lot. That's how tall the walls of Nineveh were around it. I mean, this is an impossible city to take over, right? Um, until God steps in, then it's possible. Um, but as we, uh, as, so as you, as you think about this, uh, you know, Jonah preached, revival broke out about 130 years later. Now it's ruin that's coming down. Um, the, I, I will say something interesting before we jump into chapter one, and that is that uh, most prophecies, this is something unique, and if you read the Bible as a survey, you begin to see some of this. Most prophecies deal with an empire falling. They don't deal with a specific city falling. Most of the time, the cities don't dissolve. Most of the time, the cities are just captured by someone else, and that, then whoever captured it, because why would you want to ruin a city, right? Especially like a city like Nineveh, who's got massive fortified walls, massive towers, great, a great military strength. If someone like the, the Medes or the Babylonians are going to end up taking over, why not keep the city intact, right? Then you can use that city as your new capital or as, your, um, uh, as a place of trade for you or as a place of whatever. And so this is what makes this one interesting because uh, uh, Nahum specifically talks about the city of Nineveh being completely and utterly destroyed. Not, he, he didn't talk about the other cities being destroyed. He doesn't talk about other cities. There's no other place where a lot of cities are taken down. It's empires. It's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Medes, the Persians. The, it, it's those big, big empires. The Greeks, the Egyptians, it's those things. It's not specific cities. So I think it's interesting to note that here as we jump in, because I think we will find something, if we realize and recognize that, we'll find something pretty amazing uh, in this, uh, in this, this survey. So uh, chapter number one, we're going to look at this in the three chapters, um, just in those three sections, uh, because I think it's laid out pretty well. Um, and uh, so in chapter number one, we find the declaration is what I'm calling chapter number one, the declaration. Uh, this is Nahum declaring what is going to happen. Uh, but I, I want to say, too, I, I love how this book reads. If you, if you need, after today, I want to encourage you to read this again, um, because after you kind of understand it from this wide perspective, you'll begin to see some really cool things in the book of Nahum. The, uh, the first chapter, uh, he is declaring what is about to happen. This is the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. And uh, it says, verse number two, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. That first section, that very first phrase is very intimidating, right? It's, it's talking about how angry God is towards any enemy of God. But it doesn't take long for Nahum to say something that is really, really beautiful. He goes from this first phrase, this first sentence um, in this, uh, uh, this verse, the second verse, uh, which is the, the beginning of his uh, vision, into the second part, which is verse number three. And it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power 
and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. If you, if you read this, it is, it's, it's a contrast. It feels like a contrast. It says, the Lord is vengeful and his wrath is going to be poured out, but he is slow to anger. You see more of the person of God. Right? I'm no longer just, if, if, that, if that verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, if that's not in there, then I miss something beautiful about God's character. I miss something beautiful about his strength. I've heard it said before that um, great, uh, uh, great power is whenever you have a whole lot of strength and you choose not to use it. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're not, you don't have any power, right? It's, it's when you have great and you choose not to use it, then you're, you're a dangerous person because you have the potential to do it, but you don't. And so it's telling us in this scripture, God not only is very vengeful and very full of wrath and full of holiness and power and strength, but he's also slow to anger, meaning he can control it. He's not just lashing out at people. He doesn't just explode and get mad. Sometimes, when I was a kid, I remember growing up thinking, if I were to sin, God's going to be angry with me in this moment. And he's going to yell at me, and he's going to be frustrated, and he's going to, he's going to be just, I can't believe you did that. How dare you do that? Like, that's what I pictured of God. And then I began to read Scripture. I'm like, that's not the character of God at all. He's not surprised by some moment of sin. He's not surprised by some moment of, of, of uh, disobedience. Rather, he's slow to anger. He's patient. And, and this also tells me, that uh, the city of Nineveh were sta was standing at the point of Nahum writing this because God allowed it to stand. That's it. He was just, he was waiting. He's slow to anger. He's not going to just lash out the second Nineveh did something. He knew Nineveh was going to fall. God, God knew Nineveh was going to fall before Nahum did. And instead he says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to put off this, this uh, because I have, I am slow to anger. It, and it's not because, you know, I think that Nineveh, uh, if, we, if we take this principle and we put it into our life, this Nahum is full of principles. If we take the principle that, uh, that Nineveh has been sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning, and God is going to punish them. But as Nineveh is sinning, sometimes we get in the mindset, I, I believe that Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, whenever they hear this, I think that they were so prideful and arrogant that they thought, we are untouchable. God can't do anything. If he could have, he would have. Right? If God could have fixed this, he would have fixed this. Otherwise, why did God allow so much of this to happen? Well, don't think that just because God's not doing it doesn't mean he can't do it. Because he can. Because he's slow to anger. He is slow to anger and great in power. You know, I think about uh, that this is not too far from whenever... Uh, when, again, Sennacherib tried to come and destroy the city of Jerusalem, and he, uh, he lost that battle terribly. I mean, there was, there was 100,000 plus soldiers that were destroyed on that day. And as that happened, we, we forget about that because we've seen so much destruction from there. And, and we're, not, we're not too far out from it, and yet the Assyrians had experienced so much victory that they thought they were untouchable. And so Nahum preaches and as he preaches, the, uh, the, the nation and the, the people of Nineveh would not listen. Listen to what it says as he, as he transfers from uh, how the Lord is slow and to anger. Um, it says that his ways are whirlwind and storm, and his clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea, makes it dry, dries up the rivers. Uh, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. And then it says in verse 5, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Um, he's, Nahum basically, he says, listen, God holds his wrath for those against him. His vengeance is going to be poured out, but he's slow to anger. So just because you're getting away with it now doesn't mean he can't do anything about it now. And then he says, in fact, here's how strong he is. And he begins to, in those couple of verses, he begins to talk about the strength of God. I mean, when you hear that the mountains quake before him, the hills melt before him, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Oh my goodness, his power is strong. Notice in those verses, this is one of the coolest things. Sometimes what's not said is, is pretty awesome too. Uh, the Assyrians were known for their weaponry. 
They were known for the amount of weapons they could carry, the amount of weapons they could move, the amount of weapons they could haul, and the amount of weapons they could use against everybody else. Everybody else couldn't handle the weaponry. Again, they, had, they could move three chariots side by side by side on top of their walls. They had machinery, they had weaponry, they had, they had all kinds of, of, of military power in their objects. Notice, as Nahum is describing God, he doesn't mention a weapon at all. Because God doesn't need a weapon. God doesn't need to come up against Assyria the same way Assyria would come up against God. Nahum is reminding Assyria, and he's reminding the city of Nineveh, that is the most fortified city on the planet, that has more military weaponry in their, in their walls than any other city. And he says that the Lord is slow to anger. His way is like a storm. You know what? You can't fight a storm. <laughs> you can't. A whirlwind. A tornado comes, you can't fight it. You cannot fight. You know what happens with a tornado? It destroys whatever's in its path. That's what, that's what happens. Nahum is telling the city of Nineveh, your walls can't withstand the tornado of God. They can't. Your weaponry cannot fight against the one who rebukes the sea and makes it dry, who dries up all the rivers. It's a, this is a, Nineveh was in a place where we'll see in just a minute that he talks about that there's, uh, there's all these, it's a connection point and there's rivers and there's lakes and there's different places around Nineveh at the time and, and that's where their water supply is coming from. And so Nahum says, God can dry up your river. What are you going to do if you're thirsty? What are you going to do? Your soldiers can't go out and fight anymore because they're dying of thirst. Nahum's like, you don't know the power of this God, Nineveh, so you better listen, you better listen closely. Um, and then he says in uh, verses 6 through 8, uh, the prophecy turns from how powerful he is to what happens when he shows up. I, I want you just to read verses 6 through 8. I'm not going to read them to you. Uh, I encourage you to read them. Uh, but as he, he's not talking now about how, they, uh, how powerful he is. He says, who can stand before him? Meaning his presence is so powerful you better watch yourself whenever you even come into his presence. Do you, know, do you know how Assyria tried to attack Jerusalem the first time? Assyria showed up to Jerusalem. And now Nahum's saying, God's showing up to you now. You, he's not waiting on you to come to him again. Now he's coming to you. And when he comes to you, be careful because his presence is overwhelming. As they say, the Lord's good. He's a stronghold in day of trouble. Yes, that's good. His wrath's poured out like fire. Uh, the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Whenever he shows up, his presence is so powerful, you're not going to be able to withstand it. Um, I love how verse number eight, I said I wasn't going to read any of these, but I'm going to. Verse number eight says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. I don't know about you, but I don't want God pursuing me for destruction. <laughs> that sounds intense and dangerous and, and awful. It, it says that he will make a complete end of the adversaries, a complete end. By the way, here's a little piece of historical uh, evidence for you. Um, in centuries past, the city of Nineveh was so utterly destroyed the ruins of the city were not even recognizable. Alexander the Great trampled on overfoot of Nineveh on his way for more uh, conquests, didn't even know he was walking across with the former city of Nineveh. Didn't even know it. They, Nineveh was wiped off the map. It wasn't until 1845 that they discovered through a couple of different uh, archaeologists, they discovered the area where, um, where Nineveh was. That was how long it took. Centuries and centuries, millennia it took for us to figure out where the city of Nineveh was. When God says, I'm going to completely put an end to it, I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth, he meant he's going to wipe it off the face of the earth. There were so many people that tried to find the city of Nineveh afterwards that couldn't even find the city. Couldn't tell you, I think this is about where it was. How do you know? Well, they said there was walls that were 100 feet tall. I don't even see the rocks anymore. I don't even see, I don't even see the, the piles of stuff anymore. It's gone. It is gone. It is a powerful, incredible, incredible thing. I just, I just can't even imagine Alexander the Great being one of those that were the great conquests uh, uh, kings and leaders, and 
he, he marched right through that city uh, according to the pathway that he took as he, was con- as he was taking over and didn't even realize he was passing Nineveh. Didn't even know it. Um, just uh, wild, crazy, powerful. Anyway, it goes on in verses uh, 9 through 14. Uh, you hear that his words, uh, Nahum's words, go from talking about Assyria and what is about to happen and God's going to chase him down. He's going to mention this attack looks like an overflowing flood that completely ends the city. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Then verses 9 through 14, he kind of talks directly to um, the Assyrian people, the, the, the Ninevites in, in, in particularly. He even says they're like entangled thorns in here. As he talks about the entangled thorns, it's a picture of, you know, if you, if you walk up to a briar bush or a thorn bush and you've got a couple of vines of thorns that are tied together, you can't even like grab a hold of them, right? You can't, you can't touch them. They're, they're going to hurt you. He says that's who the, the Ninevites were. That's who Nineveh was. They were this entangled thorns that you couldn't grab a hold of. And here's the problem. Everybody that was trying to fight them was trying to grab a hold of them. And what God says was, they're just like some, some bramble bushes, some thorns. They're just like entangled thorns. And it's like, well, that sounds really dangerous. And God's like, yeah, but they can't stand fire. I'll just burn them up. I'll just set fire to the thorns. And then there's nothing. He, God says, I don't have to grab a hold of somebody. I just have to speak. My, I'm a consuming fire, God says. I'll, I'll show these people that think that they've, they've fortified their city so strong that they can't be defeated. God's like, that's not how this works. I, I can, uh, they may be hard to grab, but they're easy to burn. No enemy to God is, is, is going to last. God is not, he's not, he has all, all, all anything at his disposal. He's like, whatever your weakness is, I'll take it down. Yeah, you're strong. Nobody can grab a hold of you. I can just burn you up. I'll grab a hold of you. It's not going to prick me. I'm that strong and that awesome. Uh, Verse number 14 in that says, uh, The Lord's given the commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. No, that from the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Now that is not what you want to hear. Right? He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to erase your name out of any, any understanding in the rest of history. Nobody's going to know who you are. Nobody's going to know who your, who your leaders are. Nobody's going to know who your government is. Nobody's going to know who anything is in Nineveh. It's not going to happen. And he says, I, I will, I'll, your God, the gods that you have in your temples in Nineveh, I'm going to not only destroy them, I'm going to make sure they never are found again. Do you know whenever they found the ruins of the city of Nineveh, they found no temples? They found no, no, uh, no, no false gods. They found, found none of that. There was no, and they, if, apparently, according to the scripture, they were made of metal. Like, it's, they should be able to find something, surely. God's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm erasing, I'm cutting it off. Like, it's no longer going to be found. Like, this is a destruction that is intense. He reminds Judah then in verse number 15, he speaks back to Judah. He says, uh, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings the good news, who uh, publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. He's saying, listen, Assyria is not going to come after you because the city of Nineveh, its capital, is going to be destroyed to the point that they are no longer even existing. He says, so keep your feast. Now, why would he tell Judah to keep his feast? Because if you remember back in the time of, of Sennacherib and, and specifically well, the time of Hezekiah, uh, the, the time that they did not keep feasts was because of fear of the Assyrians taking over. And so he reminds the people of Judah, he says, listen, don't forget to do that. Because whenever you keep the feasts and the festivals, you are reminding yourself that I'm God. You're reminding yourself that I'm the one that's in charge here. So don't, don't stop gathering don't stop coming together and celebrating what I have done in your life because of fear of what somebody may do to you in the future because I've already taken care of your future, is what God is saying. He's saying, listen, you have no fear of the enemy anymore. I'm wiping the enemy out. So keep your feast, Judah. Keep your feast, um, Jerusalem. So uh, he then uh, turns into uh, 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 this place of there's no need to fear anymore. Those followers of God, those uh, people of God, no need to fear. Keep your feast." And fulfill your vows that, that the worthless will not come back to you again. Then he goes into chapter 2. 
Chapter 2, we see it kind of in two parts. The first part, the first eight verses, verses 1 through 8, we see that Nineveh is destroyed. Uh, It is amazing. Um, And and the way he destroys them, oh my goodness, the, the scatterer has come up against you. We know that is the Medes and the Babylonians, according to history. So we, we follow a few years later, just the coming years, um, we see that the, the Medes and the Babylonians carried out all of, these, uh, all of these prophecies. They were the instrument God used to destroy the city of Nineveh. Uh, he speaks to the roads specifically. He says, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Uh, man the ramparts. He says, as he's talking about that, Nineveh was a city that uh, through history, what happened uh, after this prophecy was Nineveh began to kind of shrink. The Assyrian power began to kind of shrink. And so as it did, it, it, it uh, concentrated all into the city of Nineveh. So when it did that, it was in a triangle shape, okay? On, so if you look on the map, on an Old Testament map, you'll see the city of Nineveh, as it, as it came closer to its destruction, shrunk down to this little triangle. And the way the triangle was, there was all these roads that went in and out of the triangle, okay? So it was, uh, it, it, it was, you had to pass through it, and there was a lot coming into it and a lot going out of it, but it, was, it made itself more secure, okay? So basically that was the purpose of cutting the roads the way they cut the roads, to make the city of Nineveh more secure and more safe. And so the thing, so here's what's crazy. The thing that, that Nineveh thought would make it more safe God calls out and he says, hey, you know those roads that that you think make you safe? They're about to be covered in blood. So what you think is going to protect you, I'm going to show and I'm going to show it as one of your biggest weaknesses. I'm going to make sure that's how I'm coming into your city. Is what God is saying. He says, those things that you thought this is going to keep people out of my city. God says, that's the way I'm coming in. I'm not showing up in the back door. I'm showing up in all the front doors. Every front door that you, every gate that you think you're going to keep me out on, this is how I'm showing up. Assyria would be all on the defense, and uh, they, they shrank so small. This was their little hub. All this goes on. So the first eight verses we see and hear how, um, how that dis- destruction happens. Uh, the, the shield, verse number three, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with a flashing metal on the day uh, he musters them. And cypress spears are branch, uh, uh, brandaged. Uh, and and as, it, as you see that happen, you can picture it. So Nahum is looking and seeing this kind of play out, right? And he says, the, the, the chariots, as, as I see them coming, are, are flashing metal. What that means is the chariots are no longer on the ground going the same direction. Flashing metal means that they are, they're now, they're now in, in disarray. They're now being blown up and there's metal coming all over. They're now being, being destroyed. They're hitting the roads that were once their protection and they are now uh, uh, banging back and forth because they're no longer on the trail they're, they're meant to be on. It says that their uh, shield of the mighty men is red. What is the color of red? It's the color of blood. It says their soldiers are covered in scarlet. Their soldiers are covered in blood. And he goes on and on. Um, and as you, as you hear it and see it, those, those few verses are just, they're scary and they're, they're nasty. Um, but the, uh, uh, those first eight verses talk about that destruction, what it's going to look like. Then verses 9 through 13, through the end of chapter 2, what you see happen is after Nineveh is destroyed, we see in those verses Nineveh gets robbed. You know, one of the things that the Assyrians would do when they would go and conquest and they would go and conquer someplace, they would rob the cities. They would ransack whoever they destroyed and they would take all the precious metals, all the precious gold, all the precious uh, jewels, silvers, everything, and they would take it and guess where they would store it? Nineveh. That's where they would store it. They would, Assyria would come in, they would take everything from a nation and they would go and put it in their home in Nineveh. And so what we find is when God talks about utterly oblivion, uh, making, <laughs> making this city into an oblivion, he's, he is not kidding around. He first says, here's how you're going to be destroyed. All your men are going to be covered in blood. All of your, um, uh, your, your shields are going to be covered in blood. Your chariots are going to be blown to smithereens. Like there is no, there's no hope for anybody in this. What once protected you is covered and laid in blood. What, is, uh, what was coming, what you were once proud of is now going to be your demise. Then he says, uh, starting in verse 9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Then he says in verse 10, desolate, 
desolation and ruin, hearts melt, knees tremble, anguish in all loins, and faces glow, all faces glow pale. As he, as he talks about this, it, again, it reminds me of the fact that uh, the, the three words that he uses to describe Nineveh here, desolate, desolation, and ruin, are, are, uh, are translated desolate and ruin and void, or empty, is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, all that, all that treasure you had, those, those vaults of all the gold are now empty. The, the life that was once buzzing in Nineveh is now void. It's now des- a desolate place. It's now ruined. It's now gone. That's where we are in this scenario. And he's talking about how they, there's, there's, it, the spoil is so bad, it's, it's gone. Nothing is going to happen. And that's how he wraps up chapter 2 in this. And he goes into uh, chapter number 3. And listen to chapter 3. Um, he starts out, Woe to the bloody city, <laughs> all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. Here's, here's where um, Nahum, I think, if you look at these three chapters, the first one is the declaration of, of the, the, what's going to happen. And then chapter 2 is the description or the actual destruction that happens. Then chapter 3 is this reason why it's happening. It's, he, he doesn't just leave Nineveh to wonder. He begins to describe Nineveh in a place in chapter 3 that is, um, that is, is awful. And listen, listen to this. So I, I can't help but think Nahum is writing this down. And I don't know how the, how the prophets exactly got the message. I don't know how, was it a, a, a vision dream? I, I think that was primarily the way God was speaking. But they had to take their pen, dip it into ink, and then begin to put it on paper, right? They had to do that. They had to write it down, especially the writing prophets. And so they would write this stuff down, and he's writing down. I can't imagine his, his mind going to where he sees this destru- destruction. Listen to what happens. He says, the crack of the whip, the whip. The rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glistening spear, hosts slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. There were so many dead bodies in Nineveh that they were, they were, they were tripping over them. That's how awful and terrible. And you can almost picture as Nahum is writing these down, I mean, he's like, he can hear the sounds, the whip cracking against people. He can hear the, the rolling of the wheel of the chariot and how it just, a wheel fall off of a chariot and go one direction. And he hears the horse galloping and all of these, these, these moments and sword flashing in front of him, glistening spears as they're coming through the air. It is an over overhaul. There is no, there's no way to get out of this. What Nahum is saying is this is all happening and there's a reason it's happening. And verse number four show, begins to show the reason. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and, deadly, and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and the peoples with her charms. He begins to say, he talks about the filth of, of Nineveh. Nineveh is known for their, their filthiness. They're not only known for being the capital of the most brutal nation ever, uh, but they're also known for um, the, the sexual promiscuity, for the, um, I mean, he, he calls Nineveh a, a prostitute here. He says, all of your women are, 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 have gone too far. They are all out here luring other guys in. That's one of your, your tricks, one of the things that it is against what God wants, and it is no, it's not good at all. Listen to what he says in verse 6. Verse 6 is just, it's, this is, I can't imagine. It says, I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle because you're, you have caused shame on other people and the, you've housed them all here in Nineveh. So I'm going to destroy the house and you, you've done all this. So I'm going to throw the filth back at you and you're going to, you're going to see something that is so grotesque when you see the destruction that I am going to bring. And as he talks about this, he's, he's explaining, this is because you've, you've taken something I've deemed as precious, man and woman. Can you imagine God in heaven saying, I created man, I created woman, and, and I've created this union. 
And there's this beauty in creation. And I want them to go forth and multiply. And I want this, this multiplication process to be a beautiful thing between these two people. And it's going to be wonderful. And this whole direction of life is going to bring glory to me. And I'm going to use this as an illustration for uh, uh, the bride and the church and, and Christ and how all of this all puts together. And God's saying, I've got this beautiful, beautiful masterpiece that I've painted. And Nineveh, you've come in here and tried to ruin it. You've come in here and you've taken my beautiful creation and you have done something with it that has turned other people, that, that, that now other people are not seeing me anymore. And I don't want that to happen. It's not going to happen. So I'm not going to hold my wrath back any longer. So the things you've done that have made me look uh, not like I'm in control, I'm going to now turn on you and you're going to see you're not in control and I am in control. And that's going to be final. He goes on uh, into uh, verse number eight. Uh, verse number eight, he says that he will. Um, uh, he, he says, "You are are you better than Thebes, that set by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea, a sea, and water her wall." This is the place where specifically the Assyrians went and captured this place, and that city was one that was said to be impenetrable. They said you could not get to the city of Thebes. You could not get in that city because it was, it was fortified by nature. It wasn't just fortified by 100-foot walls. It was fortified by nature. It was surrounded by water. It was this beautiful place down in, in, in Egypt. And so if you remember the Assyrians, after they failed in Jerusalem, they went and they destroyed. Uh, they took Egypt down. They took down uh, specifically this place in, in a battle. And so God says, do you remember how the whole world says that city couldn't be taken because of how it was positioned? He says, do you remember that? Why do you think that you could take a city that was impenetrable, but I can't? He says, I'm going to take you, the one who took that city. I'm going to take it down. I'm going to take you down, and it's, it's going to be ugly, and it's going to be nasty. And I'm telling you, don't think you can't be over, overthrown. Um, see, Nineveh had overthrown great cities before, and God says, so I'm going to overthrow you. The difference is that city was still intact. It was just run then by the Assyrians. And then when it was overtaken again, it was run back by the Egyptians again. But God says, Nineveh is not only not going to be anybody's capital city anymore, nobody's going to know it existed anymore. I'm going to wipe it off the map. People are going to walk around and not realize they're in the same place that you lived. That's how utterly destructive, utter destruction I'm going to bring. And he says, because in verses 8 through 10, he talks about that city and how it, was, how it had friends, how it had people around him. Because listen to how he, say, he says, um, uh, Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and, without, and that without limit. They, and put um, uh, the Libyans were here, were her helpers. And this is verse 10, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed into pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men lost, uh, lots uh, were cast and her great men were bound in chains. What he's saying is, whenever you took that city over, they had all kinds of allies, and you still ended up taking that city. And God's saying, I'm going to take you. Listen to what he says in verses 11 through 13. It says, you will also be drunken. You'll go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. Here's what he's telling the people of Nineveh. He says, you went and took over a city that had a bunch of allies. I'm going to come take over you, and there's going to be no allies in sight. I'm going to take over you, and you're not going to have anybody to come to. In fact, you're going to go in hiding. You're going to go hiding away from the enemy. You're going to seek refuge. You're going to go try to hide from everybody. That's what I'm going to treat you. That's what's going to happen to you. And listen, as he goes on, your fortresses are like fig trees. <laughs> Those big walls of yours, I'm going to snap them in half. That's what I can do. You built it, and I'll destroy it. I, I am God, and there's no way around it. And then he goes on and he says, he goes even, even deeper. He says, behold, verse 13, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. He's saying this, the great, mighty, strong, the strongest, most powerful army in the world was the Assyrians. The men of Assyria were, were soldiers that nobody wanted to mess with. And in this time, Women had a role. The women's role was to be the homemaker, right? That was the women's role. They were to, uh, they, they were to sow, they were to, to harvest, they were to do some, some work in the fields. They were, they were delicate to the Assyrians, and the, the men were strong and powerful. And what God says is, your soldiers that were once strong and powerful are going to be delicate in my hands. 
I'm going to show you that they cannot withstand the power of me. That's how he says, your women are, your, uh, your, behold, your troops are women in your midst. Gates of your land wide open. Those gates that you've drawn up, you just open them right up to your enemies. They've, they're coming in the front door. Don't even, don't even waste your time thinking that it, will, uh, it won't happen. Then verse 14, I like how Nahum does this. He says, draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into this clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. You know what he says in verse 14? You know what? Get a lot of water because you're going to need it. Uh, go ahead and, and, and start mixing the mortar now because you're going to need to build stronger walls. And you're going to need to do this. And then he's like, but it's not going to matter. So you can prepare all you want to prepare. Go get all the water you want. God can, God can dry it up. Go put all the bricks, all the extra bricks on the outside of the walls. God's going to, they're, they're twigs. They were twigs before. They're going to be twigs now. It's not going to matter. He says, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. I will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like locusts. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. So listen, as fast as you built all this up, as long as it took you, to, I'm going I'm to devour it in a moment. It's going to be gone. It's not going to last. He talks about the princes and the scribes and the people of great government standing are just like little, little grasshoppers that are jumping around. God says, you, these men in high places, they're, they're, not, they're not as strong and powerful as you think they are. To me, I'm going to walk over them. I'm just going to step on them. They're going to try to hop away from me and they can't get away. I'm not going to let them escape. And then in verse 18 and 19, how he wraps up uh, this, this prophecy to the city of Nineveh. He says, your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. The, the Assyrians, God, the way God describes the most the most desperate spot. I want you to think about this for just a second, because this one, this one rocked me as a pastor. The way God describes the Assyrians in Nineveh is they are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if you, if you think about this, God, in, in the book of Nahum, so far, these have been very difficult words. They, I mean, these are these are. are I mean, he's talking about just burning them up. He's talking about stepping on them. He's talking about blood up to everywhere you can see. He's talking about, and he, he says the worst part, he saves the worst part to the end. And he said, you're like sheep scattered with no shepherd. There is something dangerous about being a sheep with no shepherd. You're at complete vulnerability. There is no protection for you. There's no hope for you. Whatever comes at you, you can't defend yourself. You know, when I think about Christianity today, I think that we have people that are, that call themselves Christians, but they do not have any pastoral care in their life. They're not involved with any Sunday school class anywhere, any small group anywhere, any church anywhere, any, any ministry anywhere. They have no shepherd and they think they're okay. Can I tell you, like, it breaks my heart every night to think that, and I, and I know I can't shepherd everybody. I know I can't, I can barely shepherd the, you guys in here, like barely. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best. Um, it's, I know I have in, incredible limitations, but I know that God has called a lot of people to be shepherds, a lot. We should be raising up shepherds. We should be raising up people that understand the value of, of protecting sheep. Uh, and by protecting, like, I, I'm, I'm going to bat. I'm praying every week for all of you. I'm praying every week for the people in our church. I'm praying and going to the Lord on their behalf, begging God to protect them this week, give them opportunity to see God at work this week, because I don't want anyone. But the way God called me here was he, he set me here. I told, I told this, this team no. I was like, I'm not the guy. I promise. I have way too many inefficiencies. I have way too many deficiencies for this type of work. I'm just not, this is not what I'm supposed to do. I said, no, 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 no. And God put on my heart, there was a day I showed up here and I should have never showed up because this is what God did. He, he showed me. And as I saw the congregation here, I saw sheep without a shepherd and it broke my heart. It broke my heart. Now, there are shepherds here. 
don't, don't, don't misunderstand. If you're in a, a Sunday school class, your Sunday school teacher is a shepherd. They're shepherding your heart. They're caring for you. They are doing what they can to help protect you. I look at this and I think about the greatest the destruction of any city anywhere on the face of the earth was Nineveh. God destroying Nineveh. And the way he perceives, the way he sees the people, the inhabitants of this city are sheep with no shepherd. That's how he sees them. We have to be careful how we view other Christians. We have to be careful how we view other people because we need to make sure that people aren't walking around as sheep without a shepherd because they're vulnerable to whatever happens in this world. Whatever happens. There's no getting away whenever you are a sheep that does not have a shepherd. He wraps it up. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. He says to this city, there is a, there's nobody that's got your back anymore. I'm, I'm taking over. I've decided to put an end to you. I think whenever we read the book of Nahum, there's not a lot of gospel in here, right? I can't point you to a whole bunch of Jesus in the book of Nahum. Now, we can, there's, there's hints to it, and we can talk about some of that, but ultimately, the book of Nahum doesn't have a whole lot of gospel that we find in it. But we do find one thing. There is a ruling God who does not lose, who does not uh, let the enemy win. Uh, we see a ruling God that is long-suffering, I just want to read that verse again. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. I am so thankful the Lord's slow to anger. I am so, that's a, the forbearance of God is something I am very thankful of because I've, I would have run his patience out a long time ago with my, my dumbness. But I, I begin to see this and begin to look at this and, and what I see out of Nahum is the character of God is he is holy and that enemy that's out there I've read, by the way, I hope you've read the rest of the book, like to the, la, to the end of the cover of your, of your Bible, because what you'll find if you read to the end is that the enemy loses. The enemy loses. There's no, it does not matter how many, listen, this, I'm about to say something here. It does not matter how many um, uh, positions of influence in the world the enemy has, has placed. It does not matter how many kings, presidents, uh, uh, leaders in all of the nations. It does not matter how many of those the enemy put in place. They're, they're going to lose. The enemy loses. He, he's going to lose into utter oblivion. I, I believe that there is a, a moment coming that whenever God says enough is enough and Satan is cast down into hell and we are living and dwelling with God forever, I don't think that we ever think of Satan again. I think it's an utter oblivion to us. I think that because there's nothing that he's going to be able to do to mess with us anymore. Just as Nahum told Judah, don't forget the feast. Your enemy, you have no fear of him anymore. You have no fear of him. Listen, I don't fear the enemy anymore with my life. I know I'm on the right side. I know that God has saved me. I know that he has rescued me. And because of that, I don't have fear. If the enemy were to kill me, I win. That's what, I mean, that's the Apostle Paul, right? He's like, listen, you put the guy in jail, he's going to convert all the jailers. If you put him, in, if you put him out in the, in the cities, in the streets, he's going to plant churches. If you kill him, he's going to die a martyr's death. And, and he says, that's the biggest gain of all. Satan's like, what do I do with this guy? And it's like, well, that's, he doesn't have fear anymore. See, because he knew, he, he knew that God has already won the battle. He told, I love how Nahum tells Judah, listen, don't forget to continue the feasts because the enemy's lost. Now, this hadn't come completely uh, uh, physically true for another 50 years. But he tells the nation of Judah, it's okay, they're never going to come to you again. They're not going to show up at your doorstep because God's showing up at theirs. That's a scary thought. God's showing up to their doorstep. I hope and pray that you see in the book of Nahum a God that is ruling, sovereign, and who will not, will not lose. Let's pray.